All right, good afternoon, everybody. I'm Seth, one of the pastors here on staff. I get to teach this text. Well, I'm not really teaching this text. I'm teaching a big, long text and really summarizing it. I'm, we're wrapping up our series here on uh, 1 Samuel and transitioning to 2 Samuel and Kings in a little bit. And what I'm kind of doing here is we've been in this kind of background piece where um, Israel goes like, we want a king. And then God says, trust me. No, you don't. And they say, trust me. Trust us. Yes, we do. And he says, okay, fine. He gives them a king. And we're in the, in the first king here, Saul. We're experiencing the dwindling of his authority and the failure of his kingship. And this is what we're leading to right here is, you know, last week was all about how David goes out and fights the battles for Israel when Saul kind of should have. And here we have Saul completely melting down and coming undone and the dwindling of his even sanity before our very eyes to witness. This is God giving Israel and therefore us one big, I told you so. Listen to me next time. That's what we're experiencing right here. And so I'm doing 1 Samuel 18 through the end of 1 Samuel, which there's a lot of subplots in there, but really I'm just going to give us the main plot, which is Saul goes crazy, tries to kill David, fails. That's the, that is the overall plot we have here, is that Saul tries to kill and kill and kill and kill David, and to the point where this text that we just read in, in 1 Samuel 22, that Saul has clearly gone crazy, and we should all go, what happened to Saul? People don't just become crazy out of nowhere. Things build up, there's, there's, there's escalation, you know, there's, there's compromise along the way that all of a sudden you have Saul, the king, appointed by God, ordering the murder of the priests of the temple. What? How is this possible? How is God's appointed king, meant to represent God's authority to his people, gone, come so loose, cut so loose from reality, so disconnected from he, what he should be doing, that he's saying, kill all these priests, that even his servants, risking their own life, are like, I'm not touching the priests of the Lord. Until finally he goes, okay, fine, this one dude. You, Doeg the Edomite, you kill these people. And this is what it says in verse 18. And he killed on that day 85 priests. Then not only that, but he went to the priests and to the city of the priests, and he killed man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. So a couple of chapters ago, God had commanded Saul to order the destruction of Israel's enemies, and Saul said, no, I don't think so. I'm going to actually profit financially from this. But here you have Saul going further than he was willing to go against Israel's enemies, against the priests of Israel themselves. What happened to Saul? This could be called a meltdown. I didn't have a ton of experience with meltdowns until recently. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old and a a six-month-old. I'm experiencing some meltdowns. And what's crazy, so Olivia, my six-month-old, six-and-a-half-month-old, is you know what's tough when the babies melt down in those first couple of months because you're like, what is the problem? They can't tell you, are they hungry? Are they tired? Does their head hurt? Do they have a tummy ache? Does their, you know, do they just not like the way my face looks? I don't know. Like, so it's, so it's, what's disorienting about the newborn newborns is you're like, what is the problem? Now, now you kind of have, as they get older, Olivia's kind of stabilizing. And so you kind of can tell what the problem is. It's been X hours since she ate. Maybe she's hungry. And there's even times where, uh, you know, like we went to a, a birthday party yesterday. And we knew, okay, they're doing the piano at around 6. Olivia's kind of like a time bomb, time bomb. After 6 p.m., you're like, I'm not sure when it's going to blow, but it's called the witching hour, you know, which I think is code for rhymes with, but you can't say it because church, witching hour, you know, and, and, the, and it's like, okay, after 6 p.m., you know, you know, and so we're like, you know what? 
we're doing the pinata, and then we're going to leave. And then she's melting down on the way home, and you're trying to feed her, and she's screaming, and you're like, we did it to ourselves. We knew this was going to happen. We decided this, and it's okay. And so you just kind of roll with it. But when you know it's going to happen, you kind of just, you know, you do the pro-con, and you just decide, right? But this is, this is Israel going, we did it to ourselves. God told us, you know what human rulers do? They become dictators who won't let go of power. They oppress, they abuse, they leverage for personal gain. I told you, you did it to yourself, Israel. What's the deal? But just a couple of chapters ago, Saul wasn't this crazy. There's actually buildup here. What we see here in, in, in chapter 22 is actually like the, the climax of his craziness, that he's at this point become a conspiracy theorist on his own behalf. He's saying, look at all you people. So what happened, what really happened was David was running away from Saul in the desert and he was hungry and these folks gave him bread. That's what happened. That's the extent of it. There was no conspiracy. There was just hunger and provision. That's all it was. But instead, Saul comes marching out to these people and he goes, which one of you, I've underlined all the places where it talks about conspiracy. Verse eight, all of you have conspired against me. Later on, he says in verse 13, why have you conspired against me? There's, he thinks all these people have to, this is paranoid dictator losing his mind, won't accept reality. Clinging, holding, grasping, and then he's pouting. No one tells me when my son has friends. None of you even feel sorry for me. So he's playing this like narcissistic, you don't even feel bad for me. You don't even feel bad that my, my son is friends with this guy who's conspiring. You're all, you're, you're all against me. He's losing it. Okay, fine. Who did it? And then finally someone speaks up. It's like, hey, we did give him bread. And they're like, yeah, kill them all. And you're just going, what happened to this guy? He was not a crazy person a couple chapters ago. It's actually more than 10 times he tries to kill him. So we see, like I'm going to put these up on the screen. He tries to kill him with a spear. Then he sets him up in battle, tries to make him die in a battle. Then he tries to get his son to go against him and kill him with other servants. Then he tries with a spear again. You know, fool me once, fool me twice. You're not good with spears, Saul. Get over it. Uh, then he sends four times assassins, messengers, to go and try and kill this guy. He fail, 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 fail. Then he's like, you know what? If you can't do it right, do it yourself. He also can't do it himself. He fails, try killing him. And then he goes in the wilderness and tries to find He's just... You, you know, insanity is trying the same thing again and again with expecting different results. Saul's lost his mind. What happened? So this is really the theme of this section is Saul comes undone, blames everything on David when it's not really David's problem. And so I really want us to look at this question of what happened in Saul's heart that David who has only ever been good to him, that he experiences David as an enemy, even though David is being a friend to Saul. David serves Saul. David wins military victories and gives Saul credit. David does what the Lord says. David does what Saul says. But yet here is Saul, something going on in his heart that he thinks David's out to get him when he's not. That's the question. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to answer that question. All right, Lord, I pray that you'll speak to us through this text, that you'll help us see the ways that we're actually a lot like Saul, the ways that we are uh, insecure and paranoid like he is. And God, I pray that we'll see you as ultimately better than David, the one who serves us, even though we make ourselves your enemy sometimes. In your name we pray, amen.
So backing up, we're going to go to 1 Samuel 18. This is the seed. This is the why, right? When, you know, when, like I said, when, when I experience my kids melting down, the, the wrong result is just to try to stop it. You know, the healthy thing to do is try to figure out why. And so that's what we're trying to do. Try to figure out why. What, what's the unmet need? What's the thing? What's the misinterpretation? What's going on here that led to this? And we see this right at the beginning of 1 Samuel 18, these contrasting things that happen. So David kills Goliath. He goes out when nobody else will go. Saul won't go. Other people won't go. David goes out. This was last week. And he kills Goliath because God was with him. And, he, and he, he gives the glory to the Lord. He's not saying, look at me. I'm a great warrior. He's saying, look at what God did. Celebrate and be glad. And when this happens, there's a person who should feel threatened by David. And it's a guy named Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of Saul. He's the heir apparent. On paper, Jonathan should be the one who's about to take over for King Saul. He's the prince, the son of the king. Jonathan had been a delegate to the king. He had been someone who was seeing David grow up. And here's, here's a person who all of a sudden, there's this person stealing all the glory, stealing the spotlight, stealing the attention, succeeding, thriving. He's the golden child. He's the one that everyone th- sees, has hopes and dreams for. He's the one who people are thinking maybe, maybe they're gonna replace, he's gonna replace Saul. And D- Jonathan should a little bit feel threatened by David, but instead, here's what happens with Jonathan, chapter, 1 Samuel 18, verse one. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that is David tells Saul what happened, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day to his house and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan makes a covenant with David. We're going to be friends. I'm going to be for you. I'm going to be knit to you. We are going to be, uh, you know, this is, we're going to be friends for life. Where you go, I go. Uh, we're going to be in it together, in it to win with it. And he loves him as his own soul. And he gives David some of his clothes, his armor, his belt, and his sword. And he basically just goes, he celebrates David. That Jonathan sees what God is doing in David and rejoices and feels connected to David and is happy for him. This is, I think, when I was growing up, my mom would say all the time when I'd come and complain about what so-and-so got for Christmas that I didn't get for Christmas. And she'd say, Seth, be happy for your friend. You'd expect Jonathan to be jealous, but instead he's full of gratitude more committed to David, loves him and appreciates him and is just grateful for what God is doing in David's life. He's not going, why didn't God use me to slay Goliath? Why didn't God use me to kill that bear and that lion? Why didn't God uh, make, give me beautiful eyes and David has ugly, why, like he's, he's not doing the, why not me? He's doing the thank God that David. And he's rejoiced and connected and upholding David and grateful for this. In contrast, the person who should not be insecure is Saul. But let's look at what Saul does. Uh, so they come home from battle. David returns from striking down the Philistine. And the women, this I feel like is intentional way of telling this, the women came out of the city singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines singing songs of joy with musical instruments. And women sang to one another and they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands. David has struck down his ten thousands. It makes it harder when the women sing it, right? All of a sudden, all of a sudden, the alpha male status goes, and there's like this, and it stirs him up, and he's frustrated, and he's, he's upset. I used to be the guy they sang about. Now they're singing about David. So back up with me. So last time I preached a couple weeks ago, it was basically a case study in Saul is 
disobedient, and God takes away the kingship from Saul. Saul lies, he cheats, he manipulates, he misrepresents, he denies, he conceals, he pivots, he conceals again, and God says, I'm taking away the kingdom from you. So Saul knows he's on his way out. The succession has begun. He's no longer going to be king forever. This is not your kingdom anymore. This is going to be someone else's kingdom. So Saul, if he was truly repentant, if he really cared about Israel and God's people more than he cared about his own position, he would have said, all right, time to succession plan. (laughs) Time to brace someone up in my place. Time to hand it off well. Time for a peaceful transition of power. Time to help make the next guy succeed. But instead, he lives in denial, clinging to non-reality, frustrated, still wishing he was king. I was talking to Luke this morning, and at the nine o'clock service I said, I think Luke would say, and then afterwards he said, I would say that. So you can just say, Luke says. So <laughs> Luke aspires, so Luke is the lead pastor here if you don't know that. Luke aspires to be the worst lead pastor this church will ever have. And I hope we all hope that Luke is the worst lead pastor we ever have. And that's not an indictment on Luke. That's going, why wouldn't you want better? Why wouldn't you want to leave it better than you found it? Why wouldn't you want to raise up the next person and leave him in a better place than where you started? Why wouldn't a son want to be surpassed by his, why wouldn't a father want to be surpassed by his son? Why wouldn't I want my grandkids better off than me? Why wouldn't I want them holier, deeper character, better leaders, more compelling, better overall than me? I want that. And Saul has his chance of going, yes, I killed thousands. Yes, I helped establish the kingdom. Yes, I was the first monarch. But guess what? Someone better is coming. Everyone, look to him. Pray for him. Support him. But instead, he's like, I want to be the best there ever was. I don't want anybody coming after me to ever think that someone was better than me. That kind of ugly is in a lot of our hearts. It's in my heart. I know that. I remember when I, you know, left my previous church, I'd talk to people, say, how's it going? And they'd say, oh, it's not the same without you. And I'd go, hmm, tell me more. (laughs) Keep it coming, you know. Tell me about how I can't be replaced, you know. And this is God's house. These are God's people. You know, these are my friends. They don't, they don't represent reality well. You know, they're biased. You know, they, they don't know. I don't know. But just like there's that ugly in our hearts that you're going like, yeah, I want to be missed. I want my absence felt. I want people to look back and remember through rose-colored glasses the good old days when Seth was there. And, you know, because we tend to repress the harmful memories, you know, because or we are staying by them and can't get past them, you know. But, but that, that thing... Like, that's in my heart. There's, there's that Saul in me somewhere. Maybe it's in you. Leaving a workplace, leaving a small group, transitioning, serving roles, going place to place. You're going, I want people after me to do worse than me because I want people to think highly of me from afar. Like, that's gross. But it's there, it's in me, it's probably in a lot of you. And verse 8 says, rather than saying, you know what, I've learned my lesson, I've, I've, I've you know, dug my own grave, so to speak, I'm going to hand it off to David, praise the Lord for raising up David, he did what I couldn't do, let's raise this person up, Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him, he says, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, what more can he have but the kingdom? 
a, truly, a man who had really learned his lesson would say, I can't wait to give him the kingdom because God has raised up someone who's going to lead his people. This isn't about Saul. It's not Saul's kingdom. It's God's kingdom. And Saul doesn't get that. And David at this point still gets it. I don't want to make David sound too good because in a couple chapters, David blows it as well and God gets another I told you so. See, I told you so. That's how it goes. But this is what it says in verse 9. And Saul eyed David from that day on. You know, uh, looking at someone, positive. Eyeing someone, negative. You know, you're looking for the thing. This is, I think, the seed of Saul's conspiracy theorizing. Because if you're looking for stuff to hate, you'll find it. If you're looking for reasons to love someone, you'll probably find it. That the human mind is remarkably shaped by what we pay attention to. And if I'm looking for someone to see image of God, dignity, value, wholeness, seeds of the spirit at work, I'll probably see it. If I'm looking at someone to say like evidence of sin, evidence of fallenness, evidence, like, and I'm trying to see the worst, I'll probably find it. Like we're, we're where's Waldo people. Like we always see where's the room, okay, blue and white, like, or red and white stripes. Like we, we see what we're looking for. And from this moment on, David's looking for reasons to hate, or Saul's looking for reasons to hate David. The seed gets planted, the soul is torn, this is the seed that develops the hostility. And this is what we see right away. The next day, David's playing music for Saul. That's when we get the first attempt. Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. And David evaded him twice, which means David is in the same room as him. It's pretty small. This is the ancient Near East. So it's probably like a king's chamber, which is maybe you know, a fifth the size of this room. David's playing the, the lyre, and he, Saul throws a spear, misses goes and picks it up. David's standing there like, again, Saul throws a spear. David misses. And if I'm David, I'm like, now I know why you didn't want to face Goliath, because you can't throw spears good, you know? And, and you rub it in, you know? Like, oh, oh, yeah, there you go. But this is like the beginning of the total stupidity of Saul, right? David is like, I've killed bears and lions and Goliath. And Saul's like, I can't even throw a spear, but I'm going to try to kill him. And you're just going, what a fool. David's proven himself to be this like military prowess guy and Saul clearly doesn't know what he's doing and he's, he's failing, failing, failing and right off the bat, he's like, you know, it's, it'd be like if you see an MMA guy who's a professional MMA fighter and you're like, let me fight you and I have no experience doing anything. Like Saul's already proving that the ha- blind hatred just creates foolishness and that just builds and builds and builds and builds until eventually chapter 22, he's killing priests. But this, this root of insecurity, this, this, this desire that's being interrupted by God, but we think other people are doing it, uh, this is the core of basically all of our conflict. We see this in James chapter four. I'm gonna read this. Um, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions or your desires are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This is why jealousy or covetousness is such an ugly or evil sin. It's because it makes it impossible for us to celebrate or be grateful on behalf of other people. I'm glad that God has blessed you like this, or I'm glad that God has blessed you like that. That covetousness and jealousy goes, you should not be blessed like that. I should be blessed like that. See, I've heard it said, and I maybe have said it, so maybe I've heard it said by me, that <laughs> comparison is the thief of joy. And I'm increasingly convinced that that's not true. 
that it's not comparison in of itself. Because comparison can be a, a sober, rational, good thing, right? Wow, you have a beautiful truck. I'm so glad that you're blessed with that beautiful truck. Wow, Matthew, you're 6'5". Congratulations, you know. <laughs> I'm only 5'9 on a good day, you know. I, you know. See, when we're, when we're actually comparing with the heart of gratitude and seeing God's hand in the lives of other people, it's not a bad thing. It's when we're comparing with the heart of jealousy and insecurity that we're going, that, that actually becomes crippling and is hostile to forming friendships and erodes at our soul and makes us non-worshippers because we're just complaining about the cards I got dealt versus the cards somebody else got dealt. And I play poker from time to time and almost all the time when people lose, it's because, well, I got bad cards. That's what losers say, right? <laughs> Winners never say, I got dealt good cards. They say, I played my cards well, right? We're, we're responsibility avoiders. That's kind of our deal. But here's the big idea I want us to hang our hat on, and we're going to see this as we, as we move into this next section of the text, is that insecurity produces jealousy, which creates hostility. That Saul is in an insecure position before the Lord. He's not sure the footing he's on. He's grasping to the past, which is gone, and he's not yet sure of what the future holds. And so he's in this insecure position, and so he sees what God is doing in David's life, and he's jealous. I wish what God is doing in David's life, he would be doing in my life. I don't like what God is doing in my life. I want what God is doing in someone else's life. And that creates jealousy and it creates hostility. And all of a sudden, David, who is just minding his own business, doing what the Lord commanded, doing what the king had asked of him, all of a sudden he's going, David is my enemy, when in fact he's not. In contrast, you have a guy like Jonathan, who is living in God's kingdom, worshiping the one true God, able to see God's hand at work in other people and going, good for you, man, that's sweet, and not making it some personal, insecure self-indictment. And therefore, he can be a friend to David. And I think that's actually the bedrock of good friendship, is the ability to see what God is doing in another person and to see it over time and to celebrate it. So that's what happened to Saul. And let's see how this ends for Saul and David. This is where it leads to, and this is where we see David is different or even obviously better than Saul. So Saul's trying to kill David, trying to kill David, trying to fight him, trying to, um, trying to knock him down. And we see about 10 to 12 times, depending on how you count it, um, Saul tries to kill David. And then we see here in chapter 24, so I'm now towards Samuel 24, it says Saul gets this intel, right? He's still the king. Uh, after he kills all these priests, he gets intel back. Hey, behold, David's in the wilderness in Gedi. Um, verse 2 in chapter 24 says, Saul takes 3,000 men. Later on, David would say, you're the king out here chasing a flea in the desert, man. You're taking 3,000 people to try to kill this one person. You, what a, like, now he's just being a bad king, mismanaging resources for his personal stuff. And so he goes out there, and this is, I think, one of the times when you see the Bible is just such a human book. We see this in chapter 24, verse 3. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Saul goes, I'm here to do some business, but first I have to do my business. And so Paul has to go potty, and so he goes into the cave before the war is about to set off, and he's about to relieve himself. And it just so happens, this is like a 
a good TV show. Uh, now, verse 4, it says, And David and his men were sitting in the inmost parts of that exact same cave. My theory here is David's like, let's hide in the bathroom cave. They won't find us in here. You know, like, nobody comes in here. Nobody's in here. Go away. You know, and we're just hiding, trying to not get killed. And then Saul goes in to go potty. And then David and his men are all in the back of the cave, like, don't say anything. But then some of David's men go, look, God is giving your enemy into your hand. This is your chance to kill this guy. You can wrap this story up. You can end this narrative right here, right now. But instead, it says David arose and stealthily approaches Saul while he's relieving himself. So Saul, maybe not the most attentive guy, you know, uh, he's got this robe. David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Robe. And afterwards, Saul's all done. He's walking away. And then uh, he yells to Saul, Hey, Saul, missing anything? This could have been you. It's not exactly what he says, but he says something like that. He says, My lord, the king, why do you listen to the words who say, David seeks you harm? I don't seek you harm. You have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand. Some told me to kill you, but I have spared you. I will not put my hand against the Lord or the Lord's anointed. This could have been you, Saul. I'm not your enemy. Stop trying to kill me. David chooses mercy over violence, mercy over vengeance. He tries to prove it to Saul. Look, man, no conspiracy. I'm not out to get you. Just trying to be obedient. And Saul gives this beautiful religious speech that I'll show you why it means nothing. He says, oh, David, you're more righteous than I. This is 24 verse 17. You're more righteous than I. You repaid me for good, and I repaid you for evil. I've declared now this day how you've dealt with me, that you did not kill me when the Lord put you in my hands. For if a man finds his enemy, who lets him go away? The Lord will reward you. I know this day you'll surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. And if you're like me, meaning not super familiar with the story, like, oh, cool, maybe Saul does repent and change. Fast forward, Samuel dies, chapter 26, what is Saul up to? Trying to kill David again. Does not get the lesson, does not sink in. This is a reason why we say repentance is proven over time. That real heart change leads to real change over time. That good religious sounding words are bunk compared to actually being changed over time by God's spirit. That a lot of us in this room, we can confess and say all the right words we know how to say we, we want to make it sound like we're really sorry and repentant, but guess what? Are we changing? Repentance is not saying good words that make it sound like you're sorry. Repentance is changing. Saul says good words, doesn't change. Chapter 26, Saul gets more intel. David is hiding in the hill of Hakilah. So Saul takes a bunch of people, 3,000 men again, and go and try to find David, chapter 26, and David hears that Saul's coming to get him again. And this time, Saul's sound asleep with all his warriors, and David crawls on in, goes right to where Saul's sleeping, takes his spear, takes his water jug, and goes to the end of the uh, camp and goes, Oh, Saul, missing something. Still not your enemy. Is it sinking in? And Saul gives another good religious speech. He's like, yo, you did it again, you know, and, and oh, oh, I'm going to change this time, and blah, blah. And then Saul doesn't change, and the way this book ends is Saul goes out to mil 
goes out and fights the Philistines, uh, gets wounded, and then falls on his own sword, and that's how he, the end of Saul. Saul, the Lord's anointed, insecure, paranoid, won't repent, won't change. Didn't have to be this way. You know, that's, that's how I feel sometimes. My two-and-a-half-year-old is melting down. I'm like, hey, man, you got words. It doesn't have to be this way. Tell me what you want, please. It doesn't have to be this way. But it is. What causes quarrels among you, your desires, you have not, you covet, you fight. Seed of insecurity leads to jealousy, leads to hostility. Saul can't shake it. David, at this point in the story, knows, hey, I'm the Lord's, God's hand is on me, I'm secure, I'm stable, five enemies, that's all right, I don't need to be getting back to them, I don't need to re- return you over evil, David's turning the other cheek here, he's looking pretty good, right, again, he's going to fail in a couple chapters, don't worry about that, but at least in this story, here's, here's the big warning we got here for uh, those of us like myself, or um, leaders in the room, fathers, husbands, mothers, wives, how you start is not as important as how you finish. You're a good dad, zero to 10. Bad dad, 10 to 70. Guess what you remember by? You're a good pastor, first 10 years. Bad pastor, last 10 years. You're the guy who, oh yeah. Ooh, oof. Great honeymoon marriage, first 10 years. Find a way to train wreck at the last 10 years. Like the, just the, like the, the basic function of how our, our minds and memories work, like how we finish, we know is more important than how we start. But we have all the time looking at, hey, look at my past faithfulness. That justifies my future. Look at my past faithfulness. I have nothing to worry about. We all, because none of us are dead yet, have something to worry about. Until you cross the finish line, you're not done. And here's the picture to me of David that is just so powerful. Like I, like I said, I think there's this way in which we're like Saul and the way we're insecure and treat our relationships, but there's also this way in which we're like Saul in the way we treat the Lord. We've, we experience or we treat his authority like it's uh, an oppressive or it's an imposition or we feel threatened by his authority. We want to be kings of our own life. We want to be gods of our own life. We want to make and follow our own rules. And when God comes up and he disagrees with us, he's like, ah, I don't know, but, I don't think so, but. And we resist and we, and actually the New Testament describes us as enemies of God. That we're so resistant to his leadership of our lives that very often it's fair that we experience him like an enemy. Certainly before we're Christians, but even sometimes after we're Christians, there's this resistance to God that we're pushing him away. We're doing this kind of insecure, attached, push-pull thing. We're not sure what's going on. And here we have David, like he holds up this scrap of robe and says, Saul, this could have been you. This is one of the reasons why I think it's so important to come to church every single week is I hold communion in my hands and I picture the Lord Jesus looking at me saying, Seth, this could have been you. I had every right to take your life, justice would have been served. You would, if I poured out my wrath on you, guess what? Justified, but instead, mercy, grace. I died in your place, this could have been you. Do we see that? Do we see the kindness of God in this? 
Do we see the fact that David looking at Saul saying, Saul, this could have been you. Jesus looks at us and says, church, gateway, this could have been you. And we're rooted and grounded in that, that it's not going to be us. Because it's paid in full. It's finished on the cross. That's actually what produces the security required to be the type of people who only see God's hand at work in other people. That when I'm not on trial, then I don't have to be comparing myself out of insecurity to others, but I can actually compare myself looking for a reason to worship and say, thank the Lord he made us all different. Thank the Lord he's blessed us all different. Thank the Lord you're doing that in his life, in this, in her life, in this, in those people's lives. And I can see God doing things in life of other people. And rather than feeling insecure or pouty about it, I can celebrate that and use that as an occasion to worship. But I can't really do that till I know that God loves me and I know that he's writing my story and I know that he in his sovereignty is dispensing with blessing in different ways. And so I hope that Ways Redemption Gateway can be a people who are truly secure, rooted in God's grace, rooted in the work of Christ on the cross and actually enable us to be the type of people like Jonathan in this story who see God doing something in someone else's life and go, thank God for that. And instead of being like Saul who's like, why didn't I get that story? So that's my prayer for us. As we sing, as we worship, as we pray, that we be the type of people who develop those eyes because of our security, ruin the grace of Christ. Let me pray.